0: So you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is a global original podcast.
1: So it's J.K. now with the Don't Tell Your Mum podcast. Thank you for listening, Uh, rating, subscribing, downloading, all that sort of stuff. Uh, Today on the podcast, we have a very special guest, an elite sportsman. Um, And he's on to talk about grassroots football which will give you a clue. He will also talk about being a dad. He's a dad to four children. His youngest is 21 years old. His oldest, I think, is 31 years old or 32 years old. He's also a granddad, um, and he's an absolute legend. Uh, You're also going to find out some amazing um, stories from his footballing career, which will include uh, England. Uh, Today on the Don't Tell Your Mum podcast, we're chatting to the legendary goalkeeper, David James. Nice things? Yeah, well, good. Thank you, Jason.
0: Thank you. Let's start off with kind of what you are working on at the moment, because, I mean, it's something close to my heart. We're talking about grassroots sports or grassroots football in particular. Um, and obviously, as a, as a child, uh, I, you know, I went right from kind of the under sixes all the way through to the under 18s. So like I'm, I'm willing, you know, grassroots football is massive on a uh, massive part of my life. So I, I kind of really buy into what you're doing, but wh- you'll obviously explain it better than I do. So why don't you kind of fill us in and share what, what you're up to at the minute.
2: Okay, Alec, Al, can I just ask a question? Do you still play at all? Or have you played in recent years? Cause you look a little bit older than 18 now. <laughs> Well, I'll take that.
1: <laughs> yeah, but, but David, um, I mean, you, you can only see him from sort of like moves up. So yeah, I, I basically go out like this.
2: Okay. Well, you still you still look young enough. I mean, a serious question. I mean, do you, do you participate in any kind of sort of football activity with your mates? It might be five a side once a month or
0: yeah, I I, I do. Um, so I uh, I played right up. I put, went into adults and played till I was about twenty five. Oh. And then when kids hit, I, uh, you know, Saturdays just evaporated and I moved to kind of midweek, 5 aside, side 6 aside, side 7 aside, or however many people we could get that week. And, um, and now every Tuesday, I, I play 5 aside side now.
2: Fantastic. And, and this is the point. So, you know, what Utilita did, um, they, they did a report in, in September, um, looking at the state of play with grassroots football because of the the lockdown uh, due to the pandemic, and they identified or they found the information to suggest that 4,000 grassroots clubs would go out of existence, um, 10% essentially. And because of the subsequent lockdowns, and obviously we're in the third one now, um, that number has gone up to 5,000. It's difficult to equate exactly mm-hmm. what the number is because even in the current situation, uh, a lot of these grassroots clubs have gone into a mothball um, position to protect themselves and they won't know until lockdown is eased whether mm-hmm. or not they're, they're capable or, or able to continue um, and the reason I asked the question is because the association with grassroots is so often kids mm-hmm. going up to the age of 16 17 whatever and then and then that's it but you've just illustrated exactly what grassroots is about it's about continuing as an adult not about elitism um, the occasional game on a Tuesday, maybe once a month or whatever, and being able to use these facilities to enjoy your social activities, your physical, mental health activities, um, as, a, as a just a, as a normal person. And guaranteed, when you were there, there was a referee involved. Depending on the the, the club that you you play mm. at, there's probably a clubhouse, and there's some guys sat there, guys, girls and boys, this is or uh, ladies and gentlemen, sat in a bar you know, socialising, watching a football, doing whatever, depending on the, the size of the club. Again, there might be a uh, a hall or an um, an event, uh, uh, opportunity, location, whatever. Um, fireworks night, guaranteed they have a firework night or a firework display. You know, they'll have a, a, a football tournament in the summer. Um, all these things, which are part of the social fabric, will be lost in, at the moment, what it looks like, 5,000 grassroots clubs. And the... the the petition that we are looking to get signed to to put to the government is about them. Um, essentially not, we're not looking for a handout strictly, you know, if there's money available, of course, grassroots football clubs would welcome money or a lot of them would, but it's more about um, reducing the cost of, um, renting facilities which are owned by the government or local council. And as I say, it's just, I mean, I do it myself. So I'm kind of, I've played a, I haven't played obviously because of lockdown, but, um, now and again, I will join my mates, jump on a five-a-side somewhere, be the roving midfielder, get nutmegged. Well, I think I get out on average and nutmegged once every two minutes. Um, sure. <laughs> yeah. But just just to do my – it's my social activity. Yeah. You know, I'm not – we, we – occasionally, I was looking for it somewhere. I've got a, I've got a medal where we won the um, – I think it was the – the Leisure League's Division Two, Thursday night, eight o'clock league. Did they manage to fit that on the actual trophy? <laughs> it's, uh, it's something like, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's not a trophy. It's a little, you know, I, I, think, the, um, I think the medal's worth about 50p. But yeah. the point being, you know, we won that, that league or whatever it was. And I think the league changes every five weeks. It's, uh, it's one of those crazy things, but it's more about the social activity. And as I say, when, when you look at what is involved in grassroots football, And again, if we go back to the kids, it's about their participation, about the parents being involved. It's about the volunteers, referees, coaches, the the groundsmen, whatever it might Mm. be. Um, To lose these, these facilities or to lose these clubs, more importantly, would have a detrimental effect on the uh, the local social family, yeah
0: I mean w- when you were saying that you, you mentioned mental health and w- w- completely coincidentally, but I was actually talking to my wife um, last week, and it, actually we were on a zoom call uh, with a couple of friends and, and they were sort of saying about how i may or may not have put on a little bit of weight throughout lockdown. It's lockdown, it's
1: a lie, don't worry.
0: <laughs> but but then they were saying, well why don't you like do a um, you know do a hit session in your living room or whatever, which is completely I mean for me personally, like it just doesn't work. There's kids, there's the Nintendo, the T V like it's never gonna happen. Sausage done. But I was I was rely you know I used to rely on going on a Tuesday night and playing hard for an hour and mm-hmm. I'd be like well that's that's my structural structured in it's timetabled health fitness I'm seeing other people it was actually really I used to kind of look forward to that moment where I could escape the kids I could escape the wife i hope she doesn't listen to this so it's absolutely fine she she knows Um, what you mean she knows yeah exactly (laughs) and and just kind of have some time to myself and also feel a bit better feel a bit fitter um and and that's gone and you're absolutely right like that kind of social impact that it has on me and my health but socially Mm -hmm. as as well it is it is a big impact and obviously like the ripple effect goes on
2: yeah i mean the the, the key to this obviously we're in a lockdown and therefore we cannot participate. The grassroots clubs can't operate in uh, any normal function. It's more about being able to make sure that when we come out of lockdown, these clubs can continue. And mm. you're right. I mean, the the I've been thinking about it over the last few days uh, in, in context of being the kid again, but it applies to the adult. You know, if you find a distraction or an alternative um, form of entertainment, more importantly, then you're less likely to go back into these clubs. Mm. Um, if you know the club's going to be there then at least you've got something to look forward to and I think you know on a on a bigger picture when you lose one club and especially in more I I say especially but in these rural areas where there is a limited number of clubs in the first place once you start losing one or two clubs then all of a sudden the league structure starts to fall apart and then other clubs get affected so there's a ripple effect as you said or a knock-on effect and yeah let's be right I mean I've got a I've got a gym bike here and I Try every day to jump on for an hour, and when I was playing, um, it wasn't a problem. I, I picked up a diary a few a few years ago, which I'd I'd been keeping when I was playing, and uh, I looked at a day off. And the day off was like a, a weight session, an hour on the bike at high intensity, and I remember doing it back in that back in the day, and it was like it was an easy day. So yeah. I look at it now, and I look at a gym bike, and I'm like, why do I want to get on that bike? got no reason to do it. So um, I used to play games. We used to play Candy Crush. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it was a reason. I, my, my thing was, I need to do an hour on a bike. So what can I do while I'm on there? So I play Candy Crush. Now I, I DJ on my laptop. Um, so at the end of the hour, I put the laptop down and then go and do my other thing. And I have to do it just to, first of all, to keep keep myself sane, um, but also to break the day up into a way that I can actually, I say cope. You when know, I suppose it is a coping mechanism in the end. Um, now, Again, all of this is that in you know when normality resumes, I can text my mates and say, what, what, "What are we doing Thursday? Are we going to take on I don't know they come at Gazers United or something like that. <laughs> and, <laughs> <laughs> who, who we playing today? Yeah, they're third in the league and all that stuff. And all this 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 interaction or, or go and watch Welling Garden City and listen to the twins talking about the day that they missed the, the penalty when they were fifteen on Welling Garden City's pitch. They say it every time, but yeah. you know, it's, kind of, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of what you need to hear every time. So, uh, yeah. It's, um,
1: you said something there which actually really hit home for me. You said rural and i grew up in in worcestershire you know a, a very small tiny little village called tembury wells and it was a population of 2000 and i'm talking sheep not humans you know it's it it was one of those sort of places and, and and playing for a very small side like tembury united all run by volunteers you know they did the pitch they did the lines they did the refereeing and all that sort of stuff and if i think back now that 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 that's you know my little village would lose that that absolutely horrifies me because as you say it's not just about um, just playing a game of football. It's about building up relationships. And, I, you know, I can remember waiting. I used to live on a farm and I'd be waiting at the end of this this cobbled sort of like crappy drive and I'd be waiting for a minibus to pick me up, to take me into Tenbury Wells, to go and play football on this pitch, which, which when we got there, we had to get there 30 minutes earlier because we had to clear sheep shit away from the actual pitch oh, to play on it. But, you know, this uh, these are memories that I look back now and the, the nostalgia just makes me feel or good, and
2: to lose that, yeah. I, I mean, I lived in Bromsgrove, so uh oh, not far. Yeah, I'm telling. Ter- so, so, not far. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not familiar with your village, but uh, I did live in Bromsgrove for a while. Yeah, I mean, the, the, these are the things, and it's you know, as I say, it's tw- it's looking at about twelve percent of five thousand clubs. Um, so, therefore, you know, grassroots football will survive. As, as an entity, it will survive, but there is an opportunity, and I go back to the point about the government and the, I say responsibilities, and that's what they are, responsibilities of the government for those experiences to be, to be had by people in the future, <laughs> whether or not they're a little bit more efficient with cleaning up the sheep shit before the games or not, I don't know. <laughs> Look,
1: it had to be done. My dad did not want to be cleaning my shorts covered in sheep shit, all right? <laughs>
0: A couple of questions actually the figures in the five thousand clubs like that's football clubs as well right so presumably like there's a lot of other sports clubs that are going to be in the same situation whether it's rugby whether it's hockey you know whatever it is gyms presumably this is just if this is just football it's just a small part of the iceberg right
2: yeah absolutely i mean the you know obviously i, I had a career in football but i i participated in uh, gymnastics boxing um, school, I, I was on the show. Whether I participate <laughs> is another thing. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I was like, a, my background was multi-sport. So, you know, I, I, I love sport. And the idea of getting involved with utilities to do the grassroots football, obviously there's a, a um, there's an e- easy uh, association. But mm-hmm. like you asked the question there, if this works for football, then it works for rugby. It works for, um, I, I say, boxing. I mean, because quite a lot of the these grassroots clubs – will be hiring out or renting uh, facilities owned by the government or local council. Yeah, I, yeah. You know, it, it's, it's applicable to all of them. And therefore, the government aren't just dealing with 5,000 football cl- uh, grassroots football clubs. They're dealing with essentially the whole of the grassroots structure.
0: Uh, you know, I, I did a bit of hockey as well. I had a couple of seasons as a hockey goalkeeper
1: no padding yeah you got all the padding to save you you can't move
0: I know but it's a lot of fun because you also can't get hurt so you can (laughs) can do whatever you want to do not
1: unless you turn your back and you get one on the back of the calves that always is that that. then you deserve to get (laughs) hit
2: you you two sound like you know a lot about hockey
1: I played I played I played against um, uh, Sean Curley the uh, the Olympic guy, you know the the Olympic medalist. He he was playing okay. for Stourport, um, so I did actually yeah I did play against Sean Curley. It's fair to say that he was a thousand times better than what we were <laughs> um, with our shit stained hockey sticks. But um, yeah, was he, it the same? You played on the same pitch, didn't you? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I bet you did.
1: Yeah, we did.
2: Yeah, I bet. When you think about, as you say there, the the interactions at the at grassroots level, the, the, I was thinking this morning when I was making a cup of coffee I remember going to um, Pang Zangiella's which was one of my first clubs and one of the lads dads knew someone who owned um, a sports shop so the dad comes owns a boot and they've got all these new boots in the back of the sport it was kind of like oh wow <laughs> just just all these little these scenarios I mean they're going to be different up and down the country but yeah. everyone has like a different value to it um, the fact that in order for me to pay for these boots I had to cut grass um, in order for me to buy new gloves. I, had to, I, I became a part-time gardener, essentially, because my grandparents knew <laughs> had a friend who needed their grass cut. So I'd earn £11 a weekend after, uh, for cutting three lawns, go down a local sports shop, say to the guy, they're the gloves I want. He'd put them down you know, behind the counter. And then in a few weeks' time, I'd go and buy me new gloves. So again, all these interactions, just so I could play football. And this wasn't about I, I try and um, tell people this. I was never going to be an elite footballer. I was always just going to do what I was doing at the time. Mm. Yeah. Part of that was having friends who, you know, if it wasn't for one of my uh, my school friends, I wouldn't have played in the first place because uh, I used to go around to his house on a Thursday evening. He lived around the corner from my nan. Every Thursday, he'd be playing football. And his mum would answer the door and say, no, Daniel's not here. He's playing football. I'd <laughs> Like some stupid kid, I would always go around on a Thursday because I, no, <laughs> I had no comprehension of days of the week. You know? Just on Wednesday, morning. mate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but then eventually she said, um, when's your birthday? Because I was in a year above him. And I said, August 1st. And she went, oh, hang on a minute. Now, given that his dad was the, the manager. So she went, she went into the house, came back out and went, your, day, your birthday's on the deadline. You could join his football team. Now, in my head, that was like, great, I can do what he does on a Thursday, not, oh, this is my chance to go and play for England. So (laughs) it was about the social interaction rather than the aspirations of being a a professional footballer. And as I say, I just got into gloves and whatever else. So I did all my grass cutting and um, earning my, I think I worked at the co-op for a little while as well.
0: (laughs) We've all done a supermarket stint somewhere in our past. How good were you at stacking
2: shelves, though? Pretty good. I was on a meats and dairy That's not the same because, like, the meat is always a slightly different shape. When you've got boxes of cereal, you put them in nice straight lines, right way round. We all know how much we love football by. The injuries
1: that you get, but then you carry on playing. So even for me, as we were, as you were talking about football and growing up there, like I've had like, I've had six cartilage operations. I've had one cruciate ligament reconstruction. I've had a meniscal tear and the list goes on, but yet you still keep playing. That
2: sounds like one bad injury list That Left leg as well. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I I was very fortunate. I, um, when I was 14 or 15, I, I bust my finger Playing football, I was at Watford training, and uh, the ball hit me on the end of the finger, and and sort of snapped a, a bit of bone off. Anyway, I, I had to have an operation, and they put a pin in it. And I didn't play for a month or so, and totally went off the rails for one month. Totally went off the rails. Uh, started smoking, which which was a habit that I had for fifteen years. Um, got in, got into all sorts of trouble. Not not major, major trouble, but I just I went off the rails. And again, that's where the sport had sort of been lost and my 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 organisation or uh, security if you like had been lost um, but going through my career I didn't have that many injuries and now when you're talking about playing on we uh, now this is fortunately in the Premier League uh, I could uh, put this forward but I broke my nose given that I was an Armani model <laughs> um, we're playing Everton and uh, I came out for a ball and Kevin Campbell who went to head it elbowed me broke my nose So I'm on the pitch, blood pouring out my nose, carried on the match, which was fine. And then uh, I was in the Everton tunnel and I'm having a cigarette after the game and I'm thinking, right, England have called me up and I've got to go to play for England or represent England next week. But I've got a broken nose and I need to get it mended. So I asked the doc, "When, when can you do it? He said, we could do it on the weekend. I'm thinking, well, if I do it, then I miss the England game. Ooh, where do we go with this? So I went and played for England against Eddie. We lost 1-0, but I've still got my broken nose <laughs> because I wanted to play on rather than Get my nose fixed and all look pretty, and um... that's a good reason to play on. that. Yeah. <laughs>
1: JK, you I, it. you it's have all have it. for the
2: game. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: Mind um, you, know, you say yes. that. You know, I, I remember when I did have when when I had the reconstruction for the cruciate ligament. I was out for like nine, nine, twelve months. And as as David said, you know that that really you you do start to get depressed. You still kind of you miss the game so much. You're not having that social interaction. I can imagine there's a lot of kids out there who are probably doing
0: things that they wouldn't be doing if they were still had the structure of their training on a Tuesday and a Thursday and a game on a Saturday.
2: Yeah. I mean, and, 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 you know, we're on the right platform to talk about how parents deal with that. And I think it's very, very difficult for parents as well, because they're, they've got their own struggles. Um, not not, not that parents don't have struggles in in the, uh, in the normal world, but obviously the idea of allowing kids to have a little bit more freedom which, in a sense, could actually draw them further away from what they need to be getting back to, which is the physical activity, the socialising, and all that stuff. I've just been watching someone on the news, and the guy saying about um, online platforms and, and gaming—you know, it's a very social interaction. I'm thinking, you're not—you're still on your own in a room talking to people. Yeah, it's almost like again, I suppose, being on the phone or doing video calls all the time. You know, there's a need for it in certain circumstances, but you can never replicate that. Uh, no. That real social interaction.
0: It's not a substitute, is
2: it?
1: No. If we're talking about father, uh, you know, fatherhood stuff, which obviously, which is this this podcast's main sort of theme, your your youngest David is is twenty one years old. Twenty one. Yeah. 21. 21 year old kid. Twenty one year old kid. Wow. I'm, we're I'm, all kids still. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, mine's, mine's six, and I, I'm struggling. I already think that he's a teenager. You know what I mean? And they and everyone keeps saying as they get older, it gets worse. I'm like, no, no, no. Um, uh, what What was you know? What's the best thing about about being a dad?
2: Well, my youngest is 21, my oldest is uh, 32. Um, I think seeing them grow up. I mean, there's you know, it, from my experience, and I'm sure as much as a lot of experiences we uh, replicated through different. Um, uh, families, if you like, uh, everyone's unique in the, the, the composition of those experienced, dare I say. And, uh, you know, when I was younger, I was a professional footballer whose head was very much into football, not not the best dad at all. I, I do tell my kids this and apologise to them for not being the best dad because I wanted to be the best footballer. It was a very difficult thing for me to deal with. Um, but when you see them grow up, you, you actually get the opportunity to have the conversation, I think that's the, <laughs> the point. At six years old, you can have a conversation, and you, you you know that it's not all going in, and you know that what's coming back isn't all through uh, through through experience or uh, or knowledge. I say, um, but you do get an opportunity to sit down, have a chat, explain a few things, and realise that it will get better, or it gets good, or great, depending on how you define it. Um, and then you see them. I say so I'm a granddad now of two. Uh, both my hmm. elder girls have got kids so you know you look at it and go oh i didn't do didn't do too bad yeah. <laughs> that's so, that's
0: yeah. comforting to know yeah, that it all works it all works out in the end because i i am constantly kind of reflecting and going uh yeah, that was definitely Uh, a a shit dad day like I just that was I just did very badly handling that situation or this or he's kicking off and it's because of me or whatever so I'm constantly doing that
2: being a shit dad is essentially me being more focused on other things I mean I was uh and, and fortunately not so much now because I'm not playing but I was very very focused on being the best footballer and uh there's a side of your life, especially when you're in a professional game, uh, where the the audience, your employers, um, expect you to give 100%. And yeah. you hear this every competition, you he's know, got to give 100%. Well, that, that's not just on the field, that's off the field. And it's difficult to balance that out. And it took me a long while to to get to that position. Perhaps divorce helped in the end. But it's, it's kind of like, and I, and I, say, I don't when I say that in jest, but you know, the, the change of life circumstance gets you to, to refocus. When your kids aren't with you day in, day out, mm-hmm. then the time that you have with them becomes very different and more precious. So um, I learned to have conversations with my kids, and they were still kids at the time, proper kids. Um, I learned to be able to communicate very differently to them. And once I communicated them differently, the responses were different and therefore our relationship became different. Yeah. And things that I learned things, which I never thought I could do because in a football world, and I'm sure in, in many different industries it's similar, this is right. That's wrong. You win or you lose. It's, yeah. almost, you know, it's, it's almost a dichotomy. Yes, you can draw, but a draw isn't winning. So you essentially lose.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's like a winning attitude, right? <laughs> yeah, <Isn't it>?
2: Exactly. <laughs> it was, if you didn't win, it was no good. And if you didn't yeah. win well enough when you did win, then it wasn't good enough. Mm. So the, um, this sort of dichotomy was brought into the house. You do this or you don't do that and then i had to learn that there was there's this colourful area in between mm. black and white yeah but surely um, you
1: you you must have you know you would have been with other famous football players that are in a similar situation to you having kids and trying to be, you know, number one. And we're talking, we're not just talking for in in the Premier League, we're talking for playing for your country. And I think that, you know, footballers do get a bit of stick, but also remember, you've got to be, you've got to be number one on the field. You've got to be really well behaved off the field. You are constantly going to be judged when you're playing actually on the field. You've got fans that are loving you. You've got fans that are hating you trying to please everyone. And you are trying to please everyone. but for anyone that's just trying to be a dad, trying to be a normal person whilst being an elite sports person, no, then th-
2: I'll tell you what one of the difficulties, Jason is that or was, and this was out of my totally out of my control and something that was very difficult for the kids to, to grow up with me walking around town on my own, getting abuse or getting, um, you know, getting lauded, whatever, that's fine. I can deal with that. But when you go out with kids, and people are doing the same thing, then the kid's relationship with the outside world becomes very different. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, people often say about uh, pro- professional footballers, I just keep it in that context, about the difficulties in, uh, in how they're up there, up themselves, um, they arrogant or rude. And I, I reckon most players that people will encounter in the, on the street or with their families aren't actually arrogant. They just have to deal with things in a certain way because once you stop, then all of a sudden you, you're consumed by whatever's around you. And it, 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 there's different people who have different arguments, but I had that experience where I've been out with the kids and all of a sudden people want you. And you, I'm a, I'm, I've, I would always sign autographs. And it, just a quick anecdote. Um, <laughs> when I was at Watford, they, I was still a schoolboy. Uh, Elton John had a garden party and Elton John was there with Kiki D And I, the, everyone was getting their autographs and I didn't know what it was. And I was like, what are you, what are you doing? And I said, oh, yeah, get them to sign a piece of paper. So I grabbed the piece of paper. <laughs> And Elton John and Kiki D signed this scrap of paper. So the fact that I asked for it, I would always say yes. Yeah. Irrespective of the situation, other than literally me not being able to stop, I would always stop and sign autographs. I thought, if, I have to, if I've asked, then I, I will do that in return. So therefore, in the end, it becomes time-consuming. And say, when you've got kids around you, people are asking you, I used to go and watch my son play, and then people would be giving him stick because of me. Yeah. When he went to school, he was getting stick. If I let a bad goal in, he would get abused at school. So all of a sudden, you can understand the um, the relationship between players and the public becomes slightly tarnished because yeah. because of the kids. If, yeah.
0: To put this in context, actually, and I, we I had this recently. We spoke with um, James Cracknell, and I'm sure he won't mind me mentioning
2: James it. Cracknell.
0: Yeah, I've got and, a
2: painting of James. You've got a painting. Can we of, go and get it. You got a painting of yeah, James. Yeah, go and get it. Uh, wait, wait, there one sec. <laughs>
1: Things you never thought you'd hear. David James said, "I've got, I've got a painting of James Cracknell, and he's going to go and get it." <laughs> why the hell not? Why
2: not? Hey, eh? why not?
0: Wow.
1: Here he
2: comes. He's back. He's back. He's back. Right, you, you, you weren't planning for this to happen. So uh, when we did, uh, when we did the show, I said to James, "I'll do a painting." So, <laughs> can, you, can you see that? Wow! Look at that. Did you, did you paint that? I did, yeah. Wow. He, um, yeah, just, I tried to incorporate his motorbike, the rowing boat, and, um, Batsy Bridge. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Why not? Uh, firstly, I mean, you're obviously a talented artist as well, cause yeah. that's pretty decent. Thank you. My, my dad was an artist. Not, not that I knew that, because, um, I didn't live with him, but there you go.
1: But, hang on, so you've painted a picture of James Cracknell. Why have you got it?
2: Because I went... 2019. <laughs> I meant to send it to him. <laughs> yeah, I, just, I just never got around to send it to him. I, I've done, uh, since lockdown, um, a street, yeah, just before lockdown. Yeah, I've done about, I don't know, 30-odd paintings. Who else have you painted that you haven't sent out yet? Um, Pierce Brosnan, who I met. Uh, most of them are for me. Uh, I've, got one of, I've got one which I'm not going to send out of um, Boris Johnson. <laughs> I've got got a few of Donald Trump as well but they're not going anywhere (laughs) (laughs) wow who would have known who would have thought well well, this is lockdown isn't it and again if it's not the bike it was well actually the bike's trying to be in every day but uh, yeah different things like painting would be one thing that keeps my my mind in a, in a good direction. So, yeah. Uh,
0: well, good. I mean, I, I, this was a curveball. But what good. I was going <laughs> to say is yes. like, so, Yeah. You were talking about James Craig. Yeah. Right. You, you obviously know him fairly well. So, um, and so I'm sure you won't mind me saying it. We, are he's, pla- he said he's going to come back on the podcast. So we're going to try and get him. But I had a conversation with him recently and he said the same thing. When you are, uh, you know, you're going at like the elite athletes sports route. Um, it's almost in conflict with trying to be a good dad. And he said the same thing about the divorce as well, that actually it, when you suddenly don't have your kids, you suddenly then make every minute count with the kids. And it does, it really puts things in perspective, in
2: perspective. I in, mean, yeah. I mean, again, um, I'm sure a lot of the dads listening, a lot of the dads, hopefully not too many, but they've been through that situation. Mm. You know, either I, I went through in, uh, in my childhood, And obviously I went through it as a, as a parent as well. And it's, uh, yeah, it's difficult. You know, there's, there, there is light at the end of the tunnel obviously, but it's difficult. And I think there's a moments where you just want to, you want to do or say something which you know is the wrong thing. And I think Mm. it's easy sitting here now talking about it because there is light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, I've got paintings and the kids as well around the house. So, and the grandkids. So, you know, things worked out well, but at the time you're sort of thinking, right. I think the easiest thing to do is to knee jerk reactions, um, like yourselves talking about it, have conversations with people who have been through the experience, and there is a better way. Can I just give you a top tip? You might yes. be aware of the, the ifs or buts, have you heard about this? No. Quite often in, in a football analogy, um, uh, the striker, let's say Billy, Billy has a shot, goes over, and the, the coach says to Billy, great shot, but if you'd have passed to, to Richard, he could have scored. And as soon as you say, but Billy feels down. Mm-hmm. So the, if you change the conversation, Billy, great shot. And if you'd have seen Bobby, he might have been able to score. Then Billy thinks, well, actually I did something good and there could have been something more as well. And it just changes the emphasis. So when you're talking to, and the reason I've used a football analogy is because it's similar with kids. Um, you know, they do something, you know, oh, well done some, but well, it doesn't matter what you did. All of a sudden it's a negative. So rather than saying, well done some," but... I'm well son or daughter if then they take it in a different context and it will stop the rebuttal and what i've what i found in many relationships not my relationships entirely but other relationships is this um this vicious cycle of conversation where the but word will just ignite <laughs> ignite this almost like there was it, the uh, the ring of fire and it just turns into a blazing argument and if you chuck an if in there somewhere it actually just stops that's a good tip it's I mean, already, I'm. I'm, your
0: tip. I'm banking that to use with my wife. I was, I was thinking exactly <laughs> the same thing.
2: <laughs> I, I, I did once, and it worked. Amazing,
0: amazing. Right, well, we're done here. That's all that we need. Well, <laughs> just, I was like. <laughs> Actually, that worked.
1: Okay, yeah. <laughs> you're like, Jesus, I found something wow. that works. Whoa. A strategy. I found oh, the kryptonite. Exactly. <laughs> this is brilliant. Yeah. Uh, look, let's go for one more question, if we can. David, We, if, if possible, if you're allowed, or if you can think of a clean one or whatever, what is your favourite footballing story during your career?
2: <laughs> right. So we're at Leeds United, and uh, it was back in 2000. Two thousand and two, I think it was just before the World Cup, because I'd gone for a I'd gone for a blonde afro. I remember. Yeah. Okay. So you, you you can picture the time more the or around the time, and we're playing at um, Ellen Road. Uh, there's a few minutes left in the game, and you know there's these normal chants that come out at certain times in football matches, and it was a uh, there's only one. I'm thinking we're winning two 0 so it was kind of like in this warm glow of um, ignorance. And it was going on for a little while. And I was thinking, yeah, well, it must be one of their old players. You know, one of the old players come back and in the stand, they're just recognising. And all of a sudden there was a moment of clarity and they were singing, there's only one David Gower. And I I was like, I looked around and they all went, (laughs) (laughs) it was just, it was so magical. This was so humorous. I looked around and I I said, I had to clap at the end of it.
0: That is amazing. <laughs> oh, that is fantastic. <laughs> amazing. Well, listen, David, thank you so much for joining us. It feels like when you went to get um, the painting of James Cracknell, we, um, I was just saying, oh, it feels like we could we could genuinely have a chat all, all afternoon, um, but um, we are going to have so, yeah. to wrap it up. Yeah, and cool.
2: to, to all of your listeners as well, good times ahead, definitely. Fingers thank you so much. It. Okay. Take care, chaps. Take, Take care. care. Bye. Bye.
1: Bye. Hopefully you enjoyed that. Um, There are loads of guests that we've spoken to on the Don't Tell Your Mum podcast. Uh, Make sure you go and listen to all the older episodes. We're talking Justin Timberlake, uh, Ramesh Ranganathan. Uh, We've got uh, Bob Mortimer on there. Also, Paul Whitehouse. Uh, There's Russell Kane. And the list goes on and on. The Jonas Brothers. So yeah, go and check out those. Don't forget to rate, download, and subscribe. And until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.